Sasha Hemman and David Mitchell, thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over. And Sasha, listeners may know you by your byline, Alexander Hemon, which they've seen in The New Yorker and Esquire and on your books and whatnot, but I can't call you Alexander, so I'm just going to call you Sasha through the whole show. David Mitchell is the author, most recently, of Utopia Avenue, which is out in paperback. And Sasha, your last book was a memoir, My Parents and Introduction slash This Does Not Belong to You. We're here because you two have co-written with Lana Wachowski, a movie that a lot of folks are about to see called Matrix Resurrections. But you also work together on the Netflix streamer Sense8, also with Lana and her sister. But we wanted to bring you on the show so we could talk actually more about creativity in general, what it's like to switch from writing books to writing screenplays, what your process looks like when you switch media. So can we talk about how you guys met? Because you've been publishing roughly the same amount of time, roughly the same number of books, though, Sasha, you've had more story collections and memoirs mixed in with your fiction. David, you're pretty much solidly fiction with a couple of memoirs in translation, right? Yes. Okay. Uh, by Naoki Higashida rather than memoirs about myself. Okay, so which one of you wants to start with how you met and how this all came it's about? You go. Uh, well, I think we should go alphabetically, Mr. H for Heymon. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> I always fear that I will talk too much, so stop me if I do. Purely a Chicago connection. Um, and at the time, so I think it was 2009, they were developing a project um, that would, be, would have dealt with uh, the Bush years or the way that the Bush years would be perceived 80 years from that moment. And so the premise of this project was that, you know, some future digeologists and historians will be talking about the Bush years with a particular point. In order to develop this project, they interviewed a large number of people who were critical of the Bush regime and years. And um, someone somehow gave them my book, The Lazarus Project, in which, you know, some of those issues are addressed. And they liked it, and so they invited me for this interview. And the interview was to help them develop the ideas and themes and the scripts, but also I had to pretend that I was a historian 80 years from now. And so they dressed me up, and I had a bald head then, but they put these lights along my skull. And I never looked cooler in my life. I had this space shirt and a jade-looking necklace, right? I looked like Isaac Hayes, but not fat. It was great. And so... We became friends at that time and stayed friends. At some point, when they started working on um, David's novel, Cloud Atlas, I talked them into letting me in on it to cover it for The New Yorker. And so I, I asked The New Yorker if they would publish that thing, and of course they would. And then Lana and Lily and Tom Tickler, they let me sit in on, in on their meetings. And eventually I went to Berlin where they were shooting it and where I, I had met David. Our books were in contention for the same prize in Italy, and we met briefly then, right? Mm-hmm. But then we really were hanging out in Berlin on the shoot of Cloud Atlas. That's where we spent time and, you know, went to see Red Hot Chili Peppers with Tom Hanks and all that glamour stuff, <laughs> which was a bonding experience always. It was. And then we've been friends since. Yep. And then we started writing together, which is another bonding experience, and now I can't think of any writers I'm more fond of or closer to than David Mitchell? Uh, well, how can I follow that? So, again, while you would have deducted from that that I met Sasha, who I also can't call Alexander, uh, I met Sasha via Lana. Uh, I met Lana, of course, with Cloud Atlas, which Natalie Portman, who was a big reader as well as a great actor, she gave Lana, I think, Cloud Atlas and 
So we wouldn't be here without Natalie Portman, which isn't a sentence I was expecting to say this evening, but if you ever watch this, Natalie, thank you. Really, thank you, uh, because my friendships with Lana and Sasha are, are also very ex extremely important to me. The process for Cloud Atlas was a long and winding road, but uh, eventually Lana and Lily came to Cork, my nearest reasonably large town with an airport and, and hotels. We met in a hotel where they were courteous and considerate, not just to me, but to the staff. And I, I always wheel that out because it's really important. If, if you're ever about to start any kind of a relationship, professional one, a business one, a personal one, meet in a hotel and see how they treat the staff because that is how they'll be treating you in one year or 10 years or however long. And yeah, uh, that was good, uh, a good litmus test. So from then, uh, Cloud Outs, of course, happened and I met Sasha since. Well, there in Berlin and then uh, on subsequent occasions. And that is uh, the story so far. You've both written several acclaimed novels. You've both won some prizes. You've been nominated for a lot of prizes. Sasha, you have a couple of major fellowships from the U.S. as well. And somehow you make time to start writing screenplays. I mean, you start with Sense8, right? Is that where it starts? Or did you start noodling with other stuff before? No, it was, it was Sense8, yeah. Okay. Uh, season two. Right. Yeah. Okay. After the first season, Lily, for whatever reason, did not want to be involved. And then Lana, I don't know if this, those things are causally related, but in the second season, she invited David and me to help mm -hmm. develop the plot. So Lana, Lily, and Joe Straczynski developed the show and wrote the first season. Mm -hmm. And Joe and Lana were showrunners for the second season. And David and I came in and spent a week or so developing the plot. And then we dispersed and we did work on some scenes in the second season, but... Um, the deeper into the season you go, the fewer scenes we have provided because we got involved with our own project, right? Mm -hmm. And so, and we are credited as consultants. I always want to be a consultant. Il consigliere. That's, what do you do? I'm a consultant. It's, it's kind of murky and vaguely dangerous. <laughs> I'm consultant. <laughs> Wait, wasn't Sherlock Holmes a consultant technically? I think he was. We had the, in, in the, you know, the company of Sherlock Holmes. In any case, I, and then... For the third season, I, for some reason, Joe Straczynski dropped out, dropped out of Sensate, and David, Lana, and I were supposed to write the third season, but then they canceled the third season. <laughs> David was already booked to place, and we were paid to carve out two months to work on the third season, and David, you know, blocked that time, and since we were already getting paid, this is how industry, the industry works, we decided to get together in Chicago anyway, and just write something else. We had another idea. So we started developing this spec project. And then while we were there in developing this spec project, which, by the way, the premise was the dissolution of the United States in the next generation, then Alana negotiated a finale for Sense8 with Netflix. And so then David, Lana, and I, we wrote that finale. Thanks to the Sense8 fans, we should say, who yeah. first sort of agitated for a finale for the show. And uh, thank you to Probably. them and to Netflix for making that happen. Indeed, yes. Okay, but everything I've read about Sense8 and everything I've seen from the, the two seasons, empathy is sort of the engine for the entire story, right? And I'm watching this and I'm reading the coverage. And all I can think is we really get empathy wrong as human beings right now. And I'm dying to ask the two of you why we can't get it right. Why can't we get empathy right? It seems like that's the thing that's in incredibly short supply right now for all of us, regardless of where we are in the world. Pretty profound question with a multiplex answer. One of the strands, however, might be because you can 
maintain power and win elections by fostering antipathy, by fostering divide. This surely is one of the engines. Sasha, I'm sure, will have a number of others. Well, I mean, I have complicated thoughts about empathy because fascists can have empathy too. They just empathize with a particular class of people. So empathy is not necessarily a sign of moral standing or source of ethical value or aesthetical value of a work. If empathy is understood as effective identification, technically being aroused by pornography is empathy. What I like about Sensei, what I'm very proud of, as you can see the poster, is that it's a little more than empathy. They embody each other, right? There's an effective identification of sharing of feelings, but they also can read each other's minds and they communicate within this sensate space. So the connection is far more than empathy, right? Because they can have arguments, in fact, inside their heads. And so the way we talked about it, or I like to think about it, is sort of this the cluster is inherently polyphonic. Eight different people who have different personalities, different voices, different minds, different bodies. And so at some point, the first season is certainly of their finding a way to be together in this space, to conceptualize it because the concept was not available. And then beyond that, they have to, you know, occupy and find ways to benefit and help each other while inhabiting one another's minds. And that, the polyphonic aspect of the whole show, and we talked about it in relation to the show, but also we talk about it in relation to books. And so the way... David's books, for instance, have always been polyphonic. What he's great at is creating these personalities who are then expressed in fantastically refined and fine-tuned voices, right? And so what David has been doing in his books repeatedly is inhabiting other people's minds, right? And not just their emotional states, not just emotions. Not, it's not the pornography of feelings. It is the whole thing. I've known David now for many years and have read and worked with him, but that's one thing that I admire and I stand in awe most, this depth of understanding how human consciousness works in a real-world context, but also in a imagined, unlived societies, right, in the future, right? That I'm not good at. This I'm learning a lot from David and Lana how to imagine outside of my experience. I'm fortunate here that the lighting is hiding my blush, which was a specific piece of set design on, on my behalf. Thank you, Sasha, uh, for the kind things you smuggled through about my writing there. I would like to say that the Lazarus Project wouldn't work and wouldn't be the book it is if you couldn't do all of that as well. And it's also worth just pointing out here that um, Sasha is just one of a handful of writers whose ranks would include Joseph Conrad and Nabokov. He writes astonishingly well in not his native language. I never quite get over that. The secret linguist at gathering, whatever the gathering may be, if Sasha is there, it's kind of him. And all credit due to him for that. Now I'm <laughs> I suppose I'd just like to end this digression, if it is a digression, by the observation that what I like about Sense8 Actually, this is a thought pointed out by one of the actors, but um, it's a superhero film, but their superhero is not the power making spider webs and swinging from building to building or shooting death rays from their eyes. Their only superpower, the only thing they have going for them is connection. I would have called it empathy before Sasha's thought-provoking uh, piece of exactitude about that word and 
That's why he gets a genius grant and I don't. <laughs> you mean before Sasha set us all straight? It's just like, yeah, that's right. Pretty much, pretty much. Welcome wow. to the pit, Mima. This is how it goes. <laughs> I want to go back to something, Sasha, that you said early on when you were talking about the connection between the characters and that they can hear each other and they can have fights in their head and the connection is that profound. But to me, you're describing reading a book. Yes, absolutely. That's exactly what that is. I mean, especially if I'm looking at something... Love and Obstacles happens to be sort of the book I go back to for you. And I love those stories. And for me, they take me to a place that I've never, I'm I'm a New Yorker. That is not my experience. And yet I can pick them up anywhere, pick up any story in the collection and grab my place. David creates these very elaborate worlds where we see characters come back. I mean, I'm just going to shout out Hugo for a second. I mean, Hugo keeps popping up in the weirdest places and everyone forgets it. You know, there he is in Bone Clocks. There he is in Black Swan Green. And But he is appearing in my next book. And uh, if you're thinking of that, I'm really impressed because I haven't actually, I haven't written it yet. But, uh, but <laughs> All right. yeah, thank you. That one I did not know about. But, but to see someone like Hugo repeat in books, and certainly he's not the only character, but he's also the one that gets left out a lot when people are cataloging which of your characters show up in which books. And I'm like, y'all forgot Hugo again. You're creating these worlds out of language. And yet, if you're working on a screenplay or a teleplay, you have to shift because you've got to trust the cinematographer, you've got to trust the actors, you've got to trust the director. You actually have to step back in a way that you don't when you're writing fiction. When you use the phrase, step back, a little mm-hmm. voice in my head said, not quite the metaphor I'd have, I'd have picked myself. For me, it's like it's being allowed to dismount this crazy bucking bronco horse. I don't have to describe every damn last thing. If a storm is on, I don't have to kind of think, damn it, so how many storms exist in the history of fiction? How can I make mine stand out? How can I make it original? What metaphors can I bring up that are like the cosmic wild cat of the lightning stroke? No, that's William Golding. He had that already. It's endless. Oh, it's half a day to come up with a decent eight lines about a storm. If you're doing it on final draft, God bless it, then it's simply X'd a storm, night. That's it. And so it's not stepping back. It's, hey, this is your job. Here you go. Good luck. I think that's it's crucial. The main difference to me, it is, I mean, a language doesn't have great value in the script. But in terms of my or our writing it, to me, the main difference is it's collaborative. Right, And it's one of the reasons I don't have to describe the storm is that we will figure out or imagine the storm together in the pit, in this space that we created for ourselves. Right, So it is not up to me. And if I'm writing a book, if I don't describe the storm, if I don't do something about the storm, there's no storm. Right, But if I can't, in my pages, do the storm right, right, Lana or David will come up with a storm if a storm, if a storm is required. And so a large part of writing a script, even if you're the only author of the script, is an important part is leaving space for others. And this is where what I enjoy about collaborative work and working with David and Lana in the pit is this sort of loss of intellectual sovereignty right? as relief. Not a loss as defeat, but as relief. I don't have to imagine all that, but not because I'm lazy, but there might be better storms if you combine three or more visions of storms. You know, no one reads scripts except people who are producing the scripts into a movie, right? Or might do so. So it's, it's a different relationship with an audience. And if they like it, they will like the potential in the script, not the descriptions of the storm, right? They will understand what the potential for a storm is if you just say, you know, exterior storm, night. Alana will imagine storms that I cannot begin to conceptualize. And David too, because I, you know, those imaginations are really top shelf, as they say. 
What's the pit you keep referring to? When you say you and David and Lana are in the pit, I'm assuming that's part of the process. When we worked on Sense8 and there was a group of people, you know, the directors and the writers, Joe, and on the second season, at some point we realized when we're talking, we're all speaking to the center of this group, right? So someone would have an idea, but you would not speak to the person who had an idea across everyone else. But I realized I was speaking to the center of this circle, right? And because some kind of creative, collaborative, shared space was established in this thing. And we, some some reason, started calling it the pit. And so it became the name for this endeavor of ours, collaborative endeavor, that it is more than the sum of individual parts. Some amazing energy happens when we sit in the circle. And it's not just Lana, David, and I. Other people come in and out. Tom Tickler, for instance, and various people. Um, James McTee was set in the pit. But it's the space of energy, of intellectual energy, you know, that generates ideas, that transforms thinking, that is so much smarter than, than me alone, that I, I cannot wait to be in it. I would just sit in it and listen. But also I have things to say. I would like to concur with my honourable colleague and also add the observation that the pit and referring to the pit when we are in dialogue about whatever project we're working on, it avoids the trouble, it heads off at the past, the trouble that pronouns can bring in to a collaborative process, especially one where I think we're nice people, but we have our own opinions and we can be quite willful. The word you your idea or me, my idea, uh, things can get proprietorial or accidentally accusative. But we've weaned ourselves off the habit of those pronouns and replaced it with the pit. And that way, it's a little bit kind of like the way the British House of Commons has a certain number of rules. You also don't say you, you say the right honourable member for such and such a place. For the same kind of reason, I think, although that's perhaps not the best example because uh, that place can sound like the it's regularly a war zone of braying. However, by adopting these linguistic conventions, they sound like small things, but actually they're big things. Uh, and it's a part of the oil that lubricates the wheels of this working machine that we form. Okay, and you've both alluded to this, talking about your process together, but language changes. You've just described it as both of you having different forms of relief because you can share the process with other people. But let's talk about language for a second, because Sasha, plot is not necessarily the thing you're looking at the most when you're writing a book. I mean, it's you have other things you're trying to do, whereas David, there's a lot happening with plot with David's novels, the way not necessarily happen in your novels and short stories, I would argue. That's a fair assessment. And I, I did try to write a plotted novel, but I wrote a script for it before I wrote okay. the novel. How are you influencing each other then when you're working together? Because your work is, there is overlap in the books, but how do you influence each other when you're partnered up to write a screenplay? Alana and David, they can imagine the future, which I can't beyond mm-hmm. three months from now and it doesn't look good. And so then if people imagine in the sci-fi mode, right, the issue is if, a society 500 years from now is being represented as the central chapter in Cloud Atlas, right? And I talk in this piece that I wrote about Cloud Atlas, I talked to Lana and Lily about that, right? David imagines this thing. It's a complex, complete with the language. But when they were shooting that, they have to design the objects that would fit into that world, right? How would they work? What would they do? You know, how, where would people carry them, right? If you don't mention it in a book, and it's a big deal enough to imagine that such a thing exists to begin with. But there are all these logistical technicalities in tri-dimensional space, right? And then Lana imagines that too. And to me, this is like, 
you know, watching Michael Jackson and LeBron juggling balls together to me, just what you... And when they throw it to me, it hits me in the head. But slowly, I can bounce it. <laughs> this is where I'd like to run onto the court in my basketball metaphor gear and say... I can't be as eloquent as Sagittarius, which is perhaps an example of what we're talking about, but just regarding your question, Mira, how we influence each other, it's both a little bit tricky to sort of catch that butterfly in a net of language for me, but also almost obvious, uh, for want of a better word, Sasha can do stuff that I can't. He has a more rigorous intellectual mind. I'm looking in this direction, but from the corner of my eye, I can see Sasha shaking his head. When I'm going to stop. I'm going to use my fingers here to kind of fix his head so it won't shake him up. He does. He's read more than me. He reads philosophy like I read airport novels and understands it. And Sasha, I would say, is like our quality control manager for me and Lana. Every damned idea we come up with. In fact, it has been known for his nickname to be the tyre, the kicker. Someone offers you a free car and you don't say, oh, great, what a free car. No, you go kick the tyres to say, mm, well, I'm not much air. <laughs> uh, but, <laughs> doink, doink. But um, for an idea to get past Sasha, it's got to be good. Now, that doesn't mean it has to be good in the first instance. Many is the time where I've thrown in not just a half-baked, but like an eighth-baked or a sixteenth-baked idea into the pit. And they work on it, and it comes, and it's kind of the bits that are good get amplified, and, and, and the bits that aren't working get discarded, and it's quality snowballs. And towards the end, it's pretty damn good, but then it's got to get past the tyre, the kicker, which for me is one of the reasons I'm proud of the, the work we produce. I suspect I would let things get into the final draft that Sasha doesn't. He'll spot some internal inconsistency or, or some flaw of illogic that can be fixed, but it's got to be spotted first. And that's my very long answer to your short question. This is also lovely to hear and flattering to me, Mr. Mitchell. What I'm going to say is not responding with flattery. I really deeply and fundamentally feel and think this. They are better people than I am. They're kinder people, and including their imaginations, so that they can imagine worlds and places and actions better than what is available to us right now. They're more prone to, in the best possible sense, to kind of utopian thinking. They have faith in human beings that I often have a hard time summoning. I'm learning from them, not, just, not in terms of screenwriting, not even in terms of writing fiction, but in terms of, well, forgiveness, I suppose, and patience with others. My best collaborative efforts in my life were in the pit because they sort me out with their kindness. Thank you. And what is art without a splinter of ice in its heart, as uh, a famous author famously said? And perhaps without that splinter of ice, it is the cookies and cream. And art's got to be more than that. Yeah. The other thing I was thinking about as Sasha was talking, though, is, I mean, Sasha, you ended up in the States in 92. You were here on a tourist visa. You just left Sarajevo to knock around Chicago a little bit and see the city and war broke out and you couldn't go home yes. and you couldn't go home for a really long time. And that kind of profound displacement. And you've been back to Sarajevo since, but it is not the same city it was when you left. Doesn't that have a bit to do with your worldview? Yeah. Bosnian say if you were bitten by snakes, you worry about lizards. And so I'm in the lizard world. <laughs> so, That's a great saying. <laughs> it is. 
Is it okay if I use that sometimes? Uh, well, of course. Uh, everything, always. It's always the pit. Everything the pit is the pit, Mr. Mitch, as we all well know. Sasha, you also have a great line in this piece that you wrote about what it was like for you to start writing screenplays. And you say, writing is a means of interaction with the world and therefore it changes the writer. If it doesn't, it contains no discovery and merely reproduces the already known and familiar. Writing, I believe, should be a matter not of execution, but of transformation. Yes. And so in the pit, this transformation takes place. I mean, in real time, right? And this is just so fascinating. I can never get used to it. The way that someone has an idea, things move in the pit laterally, right? Never across, never confrontationally. And I mean, maybe they don't always, but they, I always have a sense that this, this, we use the, the verb spin to describe what is happening in the pit. So if someone has an idea, however small or large, it moves to the next person by way of, we kind of establish a practice of never saying but, but yes and. And so it moves laterally with this yes and rotation, uh, or circulation, and then it becomes something entirely different at, at some point. Even if we, a few times we have sort of temporary impasse, we didn't know what to do, but it just, this energy of the pit transforms things into new thoughts. And to me, that is so rewarding and such a fascinating experience. Totally changed the way I think about creativity and art in general, not just in terms of film, but also I have recently started making music with other people. And I realized recently that I would not have been able to do that without the experience of the pit. I learned to be patient and leave people their space and, and have confidence that other people have at least as good and probably better ideas than I can have. And also have confidence that what I put into the pit or this collaborative space, that it does have value too. It's a kind of a, my intellectual home, the pit, where I feel comfortable and very, very alert to the possibilities and to other people. This is the kind of thing that I crave and seek, not, not just the pit as such, which I constantly long for, but also entering these collaborative situations. I want to hear and see what other people have to say. All the time. I used to be, you know, focused and pessimistic and, uh, you know, darkish. And that's not that I changed radically, but there's this longing for being with other people, which is kind of sensate philosophy right there. I, I've adopted it by way of writing it. If I may respond to that and make an observation to your question and circle back to a point I wanted to make about 20 minutes ago, but the moment passed uh, all at once, then I'll have a go. Sasha just then very eloquently talked about kind of one thing he'd learned from the pit. Same here, me too. And not but is one rule. Another rule is don't interrupt. And we just internalise this and never interrupt. And an interruption is the biggest sort of but of of all. It's that but of buts. It's that meta but. Super but. And incidentally, I've, I've started applying the same uh, principles uh, just with my wife and we get on better. <laughs> but that's uh, but that's this time. I wanted to say that what I've learned, and I fear I may have been a little bit dismissive of just when we were talking about storms, about how much easier it is to write screenplays from that point of view. I was inadvertently dismissive of the art. Screenwriters know things and can do things that novelists can't. They know about concision. They have a haiku poet's awareness of this. And this is the point I've learned and the point I'm ramblingly getting to. Lines and screenplays have to do more than one thing to earn their space, to earn their keep. Novels can be big, baggy, capacious, rambling, rather like me. Most of those adjectives, I think, can be safely applied to. And that isn't the case with the screenplay. It's so expensive to make <laughs> a million bucks a page in some cases, literally, that every single line's got to do 
at least one thing, develop the plot, build character, transmit an idea, contribute to scene, to mood, be a beat, be a piece of wit. It's really hard to do. And screenwriters have just as uh, equal acclaim on the status or the title of artist as anybody in any field. And learning these things has been a joy and an illumination for me. The metaphor I think of is how a master cellist can, uh, with one draw of the bow, kind of the bow touches this string here, this string here, and by pressing it down really hard there, it can touch three strings at the same time. So you get one draw of the bow and three notes in harmony. Now, that draw, that's the line of a beautifully written screenplay. And learning that this sort of mountain exists and making my attempts to climb up it has been a big deal for me. It's something I've found I can start applying to myself as a novelist. It's how the process has been transformative for me. And I would draw a line between my kind of pre-screenplay work and my post-beginning to learn about screenplay work. And finally, just to bring it back to the pit, this is what it also does. I'll throw in a, what I'd like to think of as a perfectly good line or an idea. And either Lana or Sasha will say kind of, yes, and if we do this to it, then it can perform this function as well same line or a slightly altered line it's this um sort of multi-function kind of the way that lines are like swiss army knives the best lines and um lana and sasha for me they kind of add functions to to my lines and just to see that happen and to kind of internalize that process and think well maybe i do that with my own fiction like why not let's give that a go it's been a great thing for me that was a five minute point that's an excellent point i fully concur mr mitchell i think that the script is most obviously a structure. And so in, in our pit work, there's a phase with note cards where it's, there's scenes and ideas aligned up just so that we can see how this could be laid out before we write any pages. And so a novel's structure could be tucked inside the language, as it were, right? Or the, the life of characters, right? It could be not quite hidden, but underneath it all. But the value of lines that David was talking about, uh, or the value of a scene, it's so much of it depends on the structure, where it is in this setup, right? So the same line in the first page doesn't work, on the 15th page it's gold. And so finding this requires more than one pair of eyes. And also, in a script, this is what I always, we always assume that there'll be other eyes outside of the pit. There'll be a, a DP, there'll be actors. And sometimes they come in and read and give us opinions, right? And so we have to adjust. But the thing was, I know that if I keep writing this book, I'm going to finish it. And the editor will, you know, clean it up or whatever, and it'll be get published. But I have to keep doing it. But we can keep, we cannot keep writing the script. And if we write it until it's sufficiently good to be passed on to, to filmmakers. I mean, I, I guess we are part of that filmmaking process, but people who will be, you know, on the set. Actors, DP, prop people, we're lucky enough to have spent time with Lana's crew. We know who they are. We knew that Keanu would be in The Matrix, right? And he read through the script one of the late drafts and gave us notes. But we also could assume who else is going to be, who the producers, who the AD is. And so the great thing about working with Lana is you have a sense of you working inside a family, uh, inside a tribe, as it were, right? And some people change, some people stay the same. And so I always had that, at least in the back of my mind, that this is going to go and be seen by people who I know and already like, and they're also people I don't know and might not like, but they will be making this thing. They'll be converting them to images. 
a script is finished in a movie, which then erases the script as an, a, a sovereign piece of art. Okay, so language builds the script. You're using language as a jackknife. You're also using language to set place. And I don't mean necessarily in the literal sense. I mean, Sense8, you were able to film all around the world and it, it's gorgeous. The cinematography is great. The settings are fantastic. It is absolutely an immersive viewing experience. And certainly The Matrix is The Matrix. But how are you using language differently in a screenplay? Are you less self-indulgent when you're drafting a screenplay? Do you just have to immediately go straight to the thing itself? There's no narrator in the script, right? And so mm -hmm. you can have a narrator in a novel as a position, structural element. But also I perceive myself as a narrator, as a storyteller, right? And I'm the source of the stories I'm making up. And it could be projected onto the role or the position of the narrator in the book, right? But there's no narrator in the film. It just is. It is what they would call self-authenticating, right? Someone stood in front of the camera and delivered those lines, even if it's CGI everywhere, but someone actually did that. And so it means that the language, it could be controlled by us to whatever extent, up to a point. And beyond that is the interpretation of language, visually or, you know, actors reading lines. And David, we talked about it, the table readings of the script, the strangeness and the beauty of a table reading, never mind seeing it on the screen. I mean, seeing on the screen is exhilarating, but the table reading, it is amazing because someone else reads the line that we wrote and they don't have to act it even, you know, they can read in flat voice, but it's just someone else's voice because you hear that line in your head in your voice, effectively, even if you're pretending that it's someone else's voice. But then someone else reads the line and suddenly becomes actualized. And that language, in other words, I don't hear the language of my novel. I don't hear people reading those sentences aloud. I might read them, but they don't really read them aloud. And then we write a line, and it could be, yeah, right. And somehow it has substance because an actor, a good actor, delivers it in a way that I, you know, where, where did this come from? What dimension was I not aware of when we wrote that? Yeah, right. <laughs> um, yeah, right. Yeah, right. A great actor, or even a mildly competent actor, they will find notes and chords in our lines that whose existence we were unaware of. And that's a part of the magic. That's astonishing. I can't phrase it any better than Sashi just did, but there's where did that come from? Because it sure as hell wasn't me. And I'm glad also Sashi gave you that long and eloquent answer to your question, Miwa, are we less self-indulgent? Uh, I've learned you can take it as said, take it for granted that any self-indulgence that you somehow smuggle into the first draft will be gone. It'll be evaporated. It will just... It'll be ash, just mushrooms scored off in a north gale by the time the second draft comes around. No self-indulgence at all. There can't be. On the slopes of Mount screenwriting, I overwrote massively. Lana would ask for a two-page scene. We'd discuss it. She'd let this happen, this, maybe this beat. Go away, see what you come up with. And what I came up with was eight pages. And I eight pages. I still bring back four pages. Lord love her. It, it's, it's her job to pack it down still, but um, she's really good at that. That's where the novelistic interference, might be the best word, comes in for me. I overwrite. I need to know all the details of the world. I need to know what all of the characters are taking for granted about their world. It's this thing we take for granted, I think, differentiates one milieu from another, both in time, space, across boundaries of the culture. What is everybody taking for granted? What are the terms of the world? What is the unwritten constitution of their existence? I need to know it. 
in my novels, I tend to put quite a lot of this in there or let it be seen. I've learned that in screenwriting, you still have to know it, but it's there as a bass string of the cello. You don't actually have to write it. If you know the terms of the world sufficiently well, that will already be dictating what is happening in the world. I don't know if this qualifies as self-indulgence or not. I think maybe it doesn't, but what can be quite appealing in a novel needs to be invisible in a screenplay. Yeah, that's exactly right. I agree. And I mean, we all overwrite because after the pit comes up with ideas, it, it, to me it's so stimulating that it's never hard work to come up with what that scene should be, right? It, it always keeps growing. And I like to keep it short, but also like to have more than it's necessary for that scene. So if you, you need a half a page, there might be two or three pages because we'll sort it out. There's no damage there. And part of the, the good spirit of the pit, nobody in the pit thinks, oh, that's just too much. Now I have to read, read two extra five pages by David Mitchell, right? Well, what does he think? He is the novelist. And so, you know, it doesn't hurt to read extra five pages by David Mitchell. There's no suffering involved there, ever. Matrix Resurrections is out on December 22nd. And is that a worldwide release, by the way? Is everyone going to be seeing that or is it just the U.S.? I think it's slightly different dates, but around the same time. I think, yeah, the U.K. is 23rd, I think, or something, or 21st, I can't remember. What I'm really hoping, honestly, is that everyone goes to see it and then they start reading all of your books immediately. (laughs) That's what I'd like. We'll see. Unlikely, but as long as they go see it, it's all good. Well, thank you both for joining us on Port Over. This has been really fun and a little silly and good luck with the movie and safe travels and all of that good stuff. Thank you. Mima. Thank you so much, Mima. Port Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.